Welcome to the Nightly Five podcast with Ben O'Shea. Welcome to the Nightly Five. On today's show, James Packer opens up about life after Crown. Nightly Editor-in-Chief Anthony DeSegli tracked him down in LA. And it's been two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. But there's one big way Australia is failing to show support for Kyiv. I'll tell you what it is soon. And the storm of controversy around New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb is getting worse. We'll bring you the latest on that. While in the US, Monica Lewinsky has become an unlikely feminist icon at 50. And to round out the show, we'll introduce you to Indian Cricket's real-life slumdog millionaire. But first, a man who's loomed large over the Australian news and entertainment landscape for decades. James, Prince of the Packer Fortune, is selling a part of his crown. Mariah Carey is engaged. The singer and her beau, Australian businessman James Packer, are getting married. James Packer, back in Sydney and back in the public eye. James Packer has returned to the media sector with a $122 million investment in the US entertainment giant Paramount. James Packer is Australia's billionaire human headline and the nightly editor-in-chief, Anthony DeSegli, tracked him down to his home in Los Angeles. Anthony, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. And so you spoke to James. We know that he's been through some turbulent years. How did he seem when you spoke to him? Yeah, look, he was really um, energised, really articulate, um, really pointed in his remarks and, and really, really open. And I think it's probably... You know, the most frank and open James Packer interview we've heard for a long time. What do you think are some of the things that we don't know and maybe underestimate about James Packer? Yeah, and I think underestimate is a is a very good term. You know, these larger-than-life characters, um, you know, it can be a thing where you only hear about them when they're in a, in a scandal or in a controversy or, 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 you know, someone's trying to take them down a peg or two. Um, and... You know, it's hard sometimes to get the human out of that person. And this is a very human interview. He, You know, he talks about everything from the Middle East, which he obviously has a special place in his heart because he's lived in Israel before um, quite recently. And and he talks about being a father himself. Mm. And he talked about being debt-free. That was one of the things that I found fascinating about this story. What impact do you think that had on his mental health? Yeah, look, and again, like it's been written about a lot, his demons, his inner demons, he struggles with mental health, struggles with alcohol, struggles with painkillers. Um, and he does talk about for the first time in his life, he's debt free. And again, like it's easy to think, well, you know, you inherit um, a fortune, you take on Crown, the Crown Resorts Empire. But with that does come a lot of debt. And when there's a lot of debt, there's a lot of decision making and it hangs over every inch of your life. And he talks about having that weight off his shoulder and the extraordinary impact on his mental health and his physical health. He says he's lost a lot of weight um, since being debt-free. You talk about the weight on his shoulder, and I know you're a fan of Succession like me, and I think about James Packer, and I think about, uh, you know, the the weight of the legacy of his father that has always weighed on him. What impact do you think that's had on him over the years? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously there's been so many words written about um, James and he's, he's, you know, quite... um, He's quite uh, interesting, colourful, larger-than-life father himself in Kerry. Um, the most uh, amazing part of it to me was talking about James as being a father. I'm a father myself of a five- and a two-year-old. He's a father of three teenagers. And, you know, like he spoke quite honestly about needing to spend more time with them. Um, and, you know, they're in their formative years. They're living in London with his second ex-wife, Erica. And, you know, he spoke very openly and honestly about wanting to be a better father and wanting to spend more time with the kids. 
Yeah, well, he's got a bit of spare change that he can uh, devote to presents for the kids. How is he spending his money these days? Yeah, really interesting. Opened up about his finances. Probably the most fascinating part of that is obviously he has... He has bet big, um, excuse the pun, on AI, um, like many people have, and, and he was part of the NVIDIA success. Um, he talks about a medical AI company that he's in on, and he's obviously an investor in Meta as well. Yeah, and one thing that you tackle with him, I guess, is how things ended with Crown and what his takeaways were in terms of working in the casino industry and his business interests in China. Uh, what, what was, it, I guess, your assessment of how he thought about that? Well, it's a pretty simple assessment, to be honest, because he was really um, blunt. And he said, you know, never again in the casino industry, never again in an industry that's that heavily regulated by the government. And he also came out with really strong remarks about China, which I think, you know, the Chinese economy plays such a massive part in the Australian economy. And, you know, James has come out and said it's uninvestable. Um, And, you know, Xi Jinping has taken it back 20 years. And so... For James to say that, someone who has been on the ground in China, um, at one point Crown probably was the biggest Australian company on the ground in China, for him to make those remarks will send shockwaves, I think, through the economy. Yeah, I think it's just so rare to get insights like this from someone who has operated at the absolute apex of Australian business uh, to now have that distance to look back on his time. Uh, It's just amazing. I've read the full article. It's a cracking read. Very candid interview, as you say, uh, with one of Australia's most famous and fascinating men. Uh, And everybody can read it themselves at thenightly.com.au tonight. Anthony DeSegli, Editor-in-Chief of The Nightly, thanks for being back on the show. Thanks so much, Ben. But I'd like to say also that uh, this information did come with the assistance of the accused, for which we're very grateful and I'm sure the families are very grateful. That's New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb yesterday landing herself in hot water again by suggesting the families of Jesse Baird and Luke Davies should be grateful to alleged killer cop Bo Lamar Condon for revealing where the bodies were. Right now, homicide and forensic officers are combing a Bungonia property looking for evidence and a post-mortem on the remains is underway. But instead of keeping us informed about the progress on the most talked about case in Australia, Webb is once more answering questions today about her performance in front of the media. Her comments at the press conference about feeling gratitude towards Lamar Condon were woefully tone deaf. What she should have done is highlight the incredible detectives who worked to elicit that information, as was her appearance on Sunrise yesterday when she quoted Taylor Swift to the show's hosts, telling them that haters were going to hate. Webb was also forced to apologise this week after earlier referring to the alleged murder as a crime of passion, which is an offensively old-fashioned way to describe domestic violence. There's no doubt Commissioner Webb has one of the toughest jobs in the country at the moment and fronting the media is only a tiny percentage of what that job actually entails. As she's quick to point out, she leads an organisation of 22,000 people. But the vast majority of that work happens away from the public's attention, which means she mostly gets judged on what we see at press conferences and in interviews. And there's a very real chance she won't be doing much more of either if she doesn't do a better job of the public-facing responsibilities as the face of New South Wales Police. Putin chose this war and now he and his country will bear the consequences. 
It's been two years since Vladimir Putin sent Russian troops into Ukraine, starting an illegal invasion that has claimed the lives of 31,000 Ukrainians, according to their president, Volodymyr Zelensky. The true figure could be twice that much, and Russian losses could be above 300,000. Now, two years into the invasion, and there's one country that's failing to show vital support for Ukraine. And it's us. Here to explain is Chief Reporter at The Nightly, Sarah Blake. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Hi, great to be here. And so we've committed a billion dollars in aid to Ukraine, but there's one thing we haven't done. What is it? Yeah, that's right. This is actually a really interesting story. Um, Back when Kyiv was first invaded two years ago, most Western countries pulled their embassies out, got their people safe out of the country. But since then, 67 have returned and they have their full diplomatic setup in Kyiv. But we don't. And there's a lot of people asking questions about it and and accusing us really of dropping the ball. Yeah, wow. And it's led to a pretty astonishing thing from our neighbours at the Canadian embassy in Kyiv. Yeah, that's right. Last year, Canada, who have the embassy next door to Australia's in Ukraine, um, wanted to fly a rainbow flag to celebrate Pride Week. And so they turned to the darkened doors of our embassy next door and uh, borrowed our flagpole. (laughs) Wow. Uh, It's certainly a pretty overt display of the fact that Australia is just not there, missing in action. And so why is this the case? What has the Australian government given as any indication to explain uh, why we don't have a diplomatic presence in Kyiv? So there there are a few reasons. The the reason that we're given from the foreign minister is that it's an occupational health and safety risk assessment from the Department of Foreign Affairs of Trade. They say that it's not safe enough for Australians to be there. But Every other country, from Indonesia to Japan, India, the UK, the US, they've all decided, they've all assessed it as safe for them to be there. And certainly I've been speaking to a lot of people in Ukraine over the past couple of days, and they describe living in Kyiv as just as safe as really living in um, in a city like Sydney. You can get food deliveries, you know, Uber's operating. There is a whole lot of normal life that's happening there in that city that's not happening in the rest of Ukraine. So... The other reason that we're told that the foreign minister is reluctant to go over the top of the DFAT bureaucrats who are giving this risk assessment, the other reason that we're told is that the foreign minister really has her eyes firmly set on the China risk, and we know that, that that's where our foreign policy is targeted at the moment, but it has led to what foreign security experts who we've spoken to have told us that it's just embarrassing for Australia and that we really have dropped the ball and that even when an Australian was injured and another killed who were fighting over there recently, it was actually the New Zealand ambassador who's had to step in and provide consular assistance to them. So that's not really good enough. Yeah, it's embarrassing for a country like Australia that has ambitions to be a player on the global stage. And so what is likely to happen now, Sarah? Well, it's unclear. There might be some movement on this. It has been a full year since President Zelensky did ask Australia to step in. We do actually have an ambassador-designate sitting in Warsaw at the moment. He hasn't actually been into Ukraine since he was given the job in December, and the reason for that is because Zelensky is holding out until we have uh, an embassy in place. So probably behind the scenes there is some agitation happening, but it is taking a very long time. Mm, Certainly a story to follow as this war rages on. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. 
possibly one of the most famous political one-liners to come from Bill Clinton's time as President of the United States. And now that woman that he was referring to, Monica Lewinsky, is back in the headlines some 25 years later. Nightly Chief Reporter Sarah Blake has stayed on the phone. Sarah, what is Monica Lewinsky doing now? She's fronting a campaign. Yeah, that's right. So obviously the big thing in US politics is not just who you're going to vote for, but it's getting the American people out to vote. It's it's pretty much what the parties are going to be spending the next 10 months until the November election trying to make happen. And obviously we've just lived through the whole Will Taylor back Biden at the Super Bowl moment that happened um, that didn't actually happen. She didn't back him. And now we have Monica Lewinsky doing a fashion shoot for a, a Los Angeles-based label that is all about getting people out to vote. She's not telling them to vote one way or another, but she is the voice of uh, empowerment and getting women out there and, and use your power to vote. Now, you spend a lot of time as a news correspondent in the US. How does the general public view Monica Lewinsky? Well, yeah, I mean, from, you know, she was the most notorious other woman in the world for a very long time. Um, and now it's very interesting to have seen her make that journey to becoming something of a, a feminist icon. Um, and I'm, look, I'm down with it because that woman, she was 21 when she started at the White House. She was just 21 years old. She got into a relationship with the president, 27 years her senior. And she went when the news of it broke, she says, overnight from being unknown to being the most public face of shame in the world. And you have to remember that she was public um, She was public enemy number one, but this was also at the start of the 24-hour news cycle in America. So this is when Fox News was emerging, the early internet, the Drudge Report, all of those outlets were just focused, you know, full-time on her. She couldn't take a breath without it being documented. And people just, you know, they hated her. They were down on her. The Clintons were incredibly popular, even though... You know, even though when you look at it now in the context of today, the power dynamic was really not in her favour at all. And so what's been really great with Lewinsky is that over the past 10 years or so, she's come out of the secluded life that she had been leading for quite some time. And at about 40, she did a, a TED talk that really got a lot of um, people talking because she talked really openly about that power dynamic and about how you have to love yourself and how to overcome shame. And it's just been a, a really wonderful sort of reformation story for her. Mm. And now into this presidential election cycle, which side of politics in America do you think is most likely to claim Monica as one of their own? Well, that is interesting because, of course, the Clintons are, are, are um, you know, Democrat royalty, but it's in possible to picture that it would be the Republicans um, uh, getting on board, um, that, that Monica Lewinsky would get on board with the Republicans, with a candidate like Trump, with his well-documented problems with women. So I think that's why it's been a very deliberate um, decision by her and her people to not say who to vote for, but to use your agency and to get out there and to have a vote. Yeah, it's a fascinating transition from someone who had about as little power as it's possible to have in a situation when she uh, was outed as that other woman, as you mentioned, with Bill Clinton, to now uh, being a feminist icon, uh, really incredible, in this powerful photo shoot uh, in a fashion magazine. Sarah Blake, Chief Reporter at The Nightly, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. Here's Joswell on strike. He gets the single, which brings him a double century for the second consecutive test match. Remember the hit Danny Boyle movie, Slumdog Millionaire, about a boy who rises from the slums of Mumbai to win a million-dollar quiz show? I'll go for D, London. Computer G, D, 
लॉक किया जाए जमाल मलिक जो एब्सोल्युटली राइट Well, Indian cricket has unearthed their own slumdog millionaire and here to tell us more is sports editor of the Nightly Ben McClellan. Ben, great to have you back talking cricket. Yes, good day. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Okay, so who is Yashasvi Jaiswal and why are we talking about him? That is uh there are two very good questions which we're hoping we can answer for our uh, new readers in the Nightly. So, yes, this cricketing sensation um that is taking India by storm. um he's essentially been the bane of the english cricket team in their most recent series uh india just wrapped up that series 3-1 jaswell starred in the second and third test with back-to-back double hundreds uh which is sort of unprecedented uh, unprecedented cricket form um but he's been around for a couple of years but he's got this sort of incredible story which like you said very much mirrors the slumdog uh millionaire storyline He grew up very poor in a rural Indian village. Um, he moved into Mumbai, where he was uh, sleeping in a tent with some groundsmen uh, near what's called the Azad Maidan, and these are these sort of large, open grassed areas in the Indian metropolises, which turn into these sort of myriad of uh, cricket games. So there'll be you know dozens of cricket games going on at once, as we all know Indians love their cricket. Um, so he was batting there one day as a kid. Um, there was a gentleman there. Um, Jawal Singh who noticed him playing discovered him uh took him on essentially as his son ended up adopting him and uh they helped him uh, make his way into the cricketing ranks um he plays in the IBL for the Rajasthan Royals um and yeah has really come of age uh this year um after making his test debut um just a few years ago Yeah, well, as you mentioned, those two double tons in a row. Uh, he was uh, one of the youngest ever to do it. Um, yes. So I think you know he's in the same category now as uh, Sir Don Bradman and Cumbly, uh, which is just just astonishing company. He holds a, a record shared with Wasim Akram for the most number of sixes scored by an mm-hmm. individual in a Test match innings. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hit twelve of those. Uh, I'm just looking at some of his stats now. So his Test average across eight matches uh, is just a tick. under 70 which is astonishing with five centuries, good. five centuries uh from eight matches uh and uh in the T20 format in the international arena uh from his 17 matches uh he's top scored with 100 uh and um and he's averaging above 33 so he really yes. has burst onto the scene in a big way an excitement machine with the bat in his hand mm-hmm. i'm guessing in india which we know is cricket mad he mm. must be an absolute superstar Yeah, yeah, he's fast becoming one. He's, he's essentially had this this opportunity to sign with Virat Kohli. Um didn't play in um in this test series. Um so that was big. Um but yeah, he's become he's fast become a darling. Um he's got you know obviously billions of followers um on social uh, media. He also hasn't got too big for his boots. He's returned he's returned to his humble beginnings where he's been pictured with um some of the guys that he used to live with he also sold uh sort of food from a street stall as he was trying to make money as a as a teen um so he's been pictured going back um to catch up um with with a gentleman who helped him there but yeah it's, it's a pretty incredible story i've got this like very good a uh, feature piece story in the nightly um on wednesday which details um his rise to uh fame through uh through the story of this coach 
um, who who had his own cricket career sort of fallen a heap due to injury um, and now tries to sort of spot the next Sachin Tendulkar. And obviously, he's definitely found himself one here with um, with Jaswell. Yeah, incredible. And so, will Aussie cricket fans get a chance to have a look at him? Do you reckon when the Indians well, come come down under in summer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I find it uh, I find it hard hard to believe that they wouldn't bring him with their squad, given how unbelievable his form is. Um, he, he bats with a very clean style, clinical. Uh, but the other interesting thing about him too is he can transition between T Twenty. And test cricket, so he hasn't actually cracked it into the uh, one-day Indian team, but obviously it looks like he's fast cementing his place in the test team, um, as well as playing in the um, in the T20 squad. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, what they do with him uh, coming up into the summer. But I'd be very, you know, like I said, I'd be very surprised if we don't see him here um, tormenting our batters. And obviously it'll be the, the really big test. Um, you know, it's one thing to decimate the English. In Indian conditions, it's another thing, um, you know, to take on the world uh, title-holding Australian bowling attack um, on on Australian pitches. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen many great Indian batsmen come unstuck on our bouncy decks. Uh, we'll wait and see, but it certainly has me uh, very excited with anticipation. Uh, sports editor of the Nightly, Ben McClellan, thanks for being back on the show. Thank you. And that, folks, is today's show. We'll see you again tomorrow. The Nightly Five podcast is brought to you by Seven West Media. For all these stories and more, head to thenightly.com.au, helping you get in front of tomorrow.